This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 399. And the quote of the day is, The desire to create is one of the deepest yearnings of the human soul. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, guys and girls? How are you today? This is episode 399, the last the last of the 300s. And now we're getting into the 400s. It's going to be amazing. And maybe 500s and 600s and 700s and I don't know. Who knows how long this thing will last? I guess it's like I guess it's like what they say in television. It's not a matter of if it ends or if it gets canceled. It's just a matter of when, right? So, who knows? Can I do this for another, I don't know, 10 years? I don't know. We'll see. But I'm not stopping anytime soon, so you're stuck with me. So let's make the most of it. Speaking of making the most... Man, that was a great transition. If you want to make the most out of your career and you want to master the secret weapons for getting higher profile and more exciting and higher paying gigs, go to drummersresource.com forward slash BBG. That's Bigger Better Gigs. And that is a five-part email series that you can get. It's 100% free. I put it together of how I grew my career, how I went from having no gigs to having a lot of gigs and touring and working with the artists who I want to work with, all that stuff. So it's just drummersresource.com forward slash BBG, Bigger Better Gigs. So drummersresource.com forward slash BBG and sign up for the five-part email series. It's 100% free and you can do that. And other than that, let's get into this conversation. This is with Tom Breckline. And Tom was introduced to me through Wayne Salzman, who I've had on the podcast. So Wayne, thank you so much for for connecting us. And Tom has, I mean, he's played with everybody. And we we start with a story of him being on tour with Chick Corea and splitting time between Chick Corea and Aldi Miola. And we talk about creativity. We talk about how things are going on today where there's a lot more creativity, but there's also a lot more sort of what I call copying, pasting. And I don't, you know what? I say that I call it copying and pasting, but I got that from someone in the podcast and I cannot remember who said it initially. Uh, but I've, I've taken that and I'm using it. It's not original, but I think that's the best way to describe it. Copying and pasting anyway. Uh, so it's just a really great conversation that I have with Tom. He has years of experience and really gets into the nitty gritty of about creating, uh, something original behind the kit and using that creativity and how you can use outside influences to help you with your creativity and also how you can use internal influences and create things on your own without anyone else's input. So I'm going to quit yapping. Let's get into it with the man himself, Tom Breckline. Tom, how are you? Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast, my man. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. I got to tell you, I was just watching a uh, an old video of you from, I think it was like from 1988, and it was you, um, Chick Corea, and it was John Patitucci, you, Chick Corea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. it was burning. It well, was- thanks. Yeah, I was doing a, that particular time, I was doing double duty. You see, the guy I, I was also working with Al Demiola at the time. That was, I think, believe that was either eighty. Yeah, it was eighty-eight. So, and um, Ted Curlin was the booking agent, 
right? And um, I think Dave Weckl couldn't make the acoustic band gig. So this is, I'm getting to this gig at Stuttgart. So they made this tour. It was like a four-week tour, or it was either three weeks or four weeks. And on Al's days off, I went to play with Chick across Europe. They're both in Europe. <laughs> and then on Chick's days off, I go back and play with Al. Nice. So everybody else had days off except me. <laughs> and for like two and a half weeks, three weeks, I'm like going, <laughs> I'm playing two different types of music. And at the end, I remember we ended up, uh, I finished with Al in Bilbao, Spain. And the treat that I got was Steve Gadd's group was also there. So nice. the next day I got to ride on the bus with Richard T, Eddie Gomez, oh, Cornell man. Dupree. And Steve, you know, Steve, we know each other. So was it, it was what like was it? Was it stuff? No, it wasn't stuff. It was no. Steve Gadd's band. Okay. Okay. You know, that's when Eddie Gomez was playing with him. Yeah. And so I got to I got to ride with those guys and hang out with those guys. This was the last the last day. And then we went to Montreux uh, to play with Chick with the trio during the day. And that was going to be the last gig. And then uh, uh, I remember getting to the airport and usually the, the festival picks you up. And so I see Jimmy Haslip and Will Kennedy I see, and, and Bob Mincer there. They go, hey, man, how you doing? And I told them the same the story that I said, I'm beat. I'm toast. You know, because after three <laughs> right. weeks with no days off and then hopping across Europe. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm thankful for the work and the, the playing experience was great, you know. But uh, and then we finally we finally played the gig with with the trio during the day. And uh, we finished. And then Jamie Glazer comes up to me, guitar player. You know, John Luponti was playing. And uh, Rayford Griffin came up to me, too. He goes, <laughs> and John Patitucci standing right next to me. He goes, what are you doing in a couple of weeks for July? And John goes to me, you need to rest. No John <laughs> Luponti, you know, because I was going to sub for Rayford. I'm looking. I said, yeah, I know, John. I'm upbeat, but I'm going to take a rest. He goes, he goes, don't do it. I said, all right, I won't. And so then the tour manager, who I knew, came out and said, Look, it'd be great if you could do it. So John's looking at me like, man, (laughs) and I'm going, okay. So like a plumber, I went out and, uh, you know, got my little pad and, you know, I needed some uh, octopads and I needed some of this stuff. I started taking notes for what Rayford uses so I could take over for him. (laughs) That was the three weeks. It was really, really great. It's funny you mentioned that one one video, but that video was really cool because we did, I mean, that night. Because we had, uh, um, oh, well, Michael Brecker was in the wings. And after we played, because we played the three quartets, all the mm-hmm. stuff with three quartets, which he was on. And at the end, we went off stage after we took our bow. And then Michael went to us. He goes, he goes, man, I wanted to come out and play with you. I know all the stuff by heart. And we all looked at him and started yelling at him. I said, well, why didn't you come out? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> thanks, for then, just, uh, thanks for just watching. <laughs> oh, God. And... Uh, so it was it was a night it was a really kind of special night it was really it was a cool it was a cool night so thanks for mentioning that yeah had a great time so when you were so at that time when you're pulling double duty between between Chick and Al were you were you playing with Al at the time technically and you were just subbing for Dave for Dave Weckl yeah so and sometimes when Dave couldn't make because I I had played with Chick from like seventy eight to. 83. Well, that's what I was thinking. So you were you were playing with Chick before Dave Weckl, and before then Weckl, and yes. then it just so happened that he couldn't do these dates, and that's why you were playing yes. with Chick at the so time. So Chick called me up, and, you know, and he I guess he, he had enough confidence in me that I could just you know play it, and we had a we had a blast, and I did it before once before in the U.S. I got you. 
So it was um, it was very cool. So I mean, it was uh, it was a nice change, you know, from from trio, you know, to like electric music to to acoustic music. So mm-hmm. it was nice. Who nice I'm change? To think who was it? Al Dino. Who's there's a drummer who lives in my town that. Mm-hmm. Play, I think it was Al for years, like twenty five years or something like that. Oh, really? And I can't remember. Well, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Robbie Gonzalez played with him, and he lives in New York. And maybe it wasn't Al. Maybe it wasn't Al Demiola. Maybe it was someone else. Oh well, we'll just skip over that because I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to remember anyway. So, right. Uh, I want to rewind the tape a little bit and talk about how you. How do you? start playing drums and i remember reading somewhere that you saw chick korea and two years later you're playing with them so how do you how do first of all when did you start playing i knew you grew up in long island did you did you start at a at a young age and how does the journey go from you starting to how do you get to chick korea well i mean i i I took an interest in music in general at a very it like around i guess i was about four years old you know Mm -hmm. and it started with elvis (laughs) Man, I just watched some stuff. I just watched some Elvis stuff the other day. I'm not a, I'm not an Elvis fan, and I was watching right. it, and I was like, man, some of this stuff is good, and it's funky, and like, well, the old Elvis is really funky before yeah. the blues, and that's what I was listening. To. Well, my sisters, my, well, my oldest sister, she's the one that had the stereo in the house upstairs, mm-hmm. and so she'd be listening to Elvis, like you know, and circa you know the late fifties into all, when you know the popular Elvis in. Uh, like Blue Hawaii and all that stuff. Right. But it, but it was the old stuff that, that, that really got me going. And it was, and so then uh, from there, so I wanted to play guitar. So I get these plastic guitars, well, save you the boring bits, but uh, that same year uh, in December, I remember like it was right after Christmas, uh, my sister bought uh, the single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Mm-hmm. You know, the Beatles. Yeah. And I had never heard harmonies like that before. Of course, I was like four or five years old. No, maybe I was five or six. And I never heard harmonies like that before. And I went like, wow, this is really cool, you know? Right. And then for some reason, I just got into Ringo. Really, I got into And then I started becoming a, a gear geek. I'm looking, I was, I mean, at five years, six years old, looking at the drum set, looking at the, uh, you know, the hi hat symbols, looking at the the hardware, the whole bit, and then um, from there you'd have these uh, PBS specials, and you and uh, you know uh, on public uh, public education channels, and you see Max Roach mm-hmm. like doing a solo or something, and I'd be I didn't know what it was, but I'd just sit there looking at this stuff, and you're like, that's no Ringo, <laughs> that's no Ringo, that's okay, that's some other stuff, you know, and then. What's your take on what's your take on the negativity that that surrounds Ringo and the people who they say he wasn't a good drummer and they say that he wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles and all that kind of stuff? Oh, who said that? Ah, you've heard it before, haven't you? I don't listen to that because I think Ringo had a great groove. I I love the way Ringo plays. Are you kidding me? And just listen, and just just to uh, just so we're just to clear anything up about me, I have I have this hanging on my wall. So the, every, everybody can't see it, but it's the Rolling Stone cover where it's Ringo right. on the cover of Rolling Stone. I'm a I'm a huge Ringo fan, but he does get oh. a lot of uh, he does get oh. a lot of negativity, and uh, people say that he wasn't the wasn't that good of a drummer. Yeah, well, there you go. You know what they say about opinions? Yeah, everybody's got one. Yeah. <laughs> you know the whole joke. I right? do, I do. You could say, it. but we're we're you know we. No, no, 
No, but it's it's it cuts better when you say you know what they say about opinions. Everybody's got one, right? You know? I think. <laughs> but so I mean, I mean, I love the ring. Are you kidding me? I mean, uh, the the shuffle, the semi shuffle on "Can't Buy Me Love" is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's real. It's, I mean, and also you know. Uh, to fill into uh, I am the walrus. Get that, get that, do get that. Don't. That's the classic Ringo film, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just stuff he did. I mean, on the early records, you know. I mean, it it, it was terrific. Mm-hmm. But then I got I got involved with the British invasion, you know, because of my sisters and stuff. They were like, you know, they were they were older than I was. And then you know, I then I uh, you know, radio was so diverse. AM radio. You hear the Beatles, then you hear the Supremes, then you hear Sam Cooke, and then you hear um. Uh, I don't know. Some there were dumb pop songs back then too, you know. But but there was all kinds of great what was music. Like, what was a dumb pop song back then? Was it like I because <laughs> no, I mean, and I don't mean that. I don't mean like I don't want you know. I don't I don't need to sit here and like incriminate yourself. But but you know, the Beatles the Beatles were pop, weren't they? They were pop and they were kind of rock. But they, but I, I at the time I couldn't I couldn't tell the difference. You know, I just knew if it was good or not good. I think that's what. That's a good thing as kids, you know, they, you don't get snobbed out or, or uh, you know what I mean? You don't get prejudiced towards one type of music. Mm-hmm. You're pretty much open to anything that sounds good, you know what I mean? And as, as, as uh, if you're going to be a musician, you should, I mean, if, if you want to play all different styles of music, that's a good thing, you mm-hmm. know, if you keep that, that, that kind of attitude like when we were kids, you know? Right. And as I grew older, I became like... I don't know. It, the more difficult, the challenging the music, the more I liked it. And then I disregard, and then I sort of uh, dismissed the, the simpler stuff, which I shouldn't have. But that's part of growing up when you're a kid. Like when I was a teenager, you know, I started getting into jazz, you know, even in, as a junior high school student. And then I started stomping out a little bit. And then uh, once in a while, I smack myself in the head and go, wait a minute, this stuff's great too. You right. know what I mean? It's, it's like, doesn't have to be complicated. Oh, you said you started snobbing out a little bit. Yeah. I thought you said oh, yeah. stomping out, and I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but snobbing out, so you oh, uh, you became... Snobbing, you just, snobbing yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, you became the guy that was like, oh, no, that's... Uh, yeah, with my sister, I used to say, well, you know, da, da, da. And then you listen to... And then you go back to it, and you and, and when you when you grow up and you, and you get a little bit more... As you learn more about music, you realize that stuff was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, you, like... The Muscle Shoals stuff, the Stacks Vaults stuff, the, um, you know, Muscle Shoals. They, Aretha Franklin's first hit record was the Muscle Shoals guys, you <laughs> yeah. know? That, I mean, I ain't never loved a man, you know, that, that that record, my God, I mean, it's ridiculous, you know? It's amazing and, that, because I, I can relate where I... Roger Hawkins, that's his name. Yeah, yeah. but I, like, I listened to... I was listening to all this stuff that was complicated. So I, I first started, you know, I'm a little younger than you. And I started listening to, uh, I was listening to Dave Matthews band, Carter Beaufort. So all the stuff that he was doing was sort of like intricate. Then I started listening to jazz and all this stuff. And I've said this on the podcast before. I remember I saw a video of Steve Jordan playing and I was like, eh, eh, I don't get it. Yeah. And now I look at it and I'm like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. And you know, Carter's deep too, and, and the reason why he can pull that stuff off and grab your attention is because he's got a deep pocket. You know, he could probably lay it. I mean, he could lay it down without playing one note and hold your interest. Right. It's like right. Steve. Mm-hmm. That's why you know, like the guys, like like Billy Cobb, Lenny White. Yeah. You know, uh, 
the Elvin Jones of fusion, I call him, you know, mm-hmm. but, but Lenny can play, but Lenny comes from jazz, you know, yeah, yeah. he, he helped guys like Lenny White, Alphonse Mazzone, especially Billy Cobham, Tony Williams. They they set the template for fusion, but they were of course Tony changed the way everybody played when he was 16, 18 years old playing with Miles. He was playing avant-garde music too, you know. Um, but uh, guys like that, you know, Eric Ravat with Weather Report. I mean, you know. They, they made jazz rock or jazz fusion, whatever, you know, and then, then you have guys like Dave. I mean, there's a guy who just reinvented a whole way of playing, too, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have Steve Gadd and, you know, but then you also had James Gadsden. One of my know? favorites. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, and uh, and of course you can't, you can't Bernard Purdy, mm-hmm. who we grew up with and we didn't even, I mean, I didn't, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, you'd hear him on the radio. You didn't know who he was, but you knew it was great, you know? Right. And I was going to say, did you know that all, like, when you when you were listening to the radio, we're like, oh, that's Bernard Purdy, that's Bernard Purdy. Not when you're six, seven years old. Well, no. yeah, of course. But like, you know, um, Melvin Parker on I'm Feel, and I Feel Good, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't know who these guys were until probably late teens or, uh, you know, late teens or in, like, into being like 20, 21 or something like that, you know? All I knew was that it, I was listening to that, that record, that record, that record, that single, that, that, that album. Right. You know, let me ask you I this. Mean, there was so much inventive playing going on at that time. Like I'm talking like, you know, 60s, 70s, even 80s. I mean, there was, we talked about a lot of these guys, James Gadsden, um, uh, um, Dave Weckl. We're talking about even, even going back to like guys like Elvin Jones and Max Roach and all those other people. Why? at why are the why do you think that these guys were so inventive then with with such little information that was available do you think it's a matter of the instrument wasn't as old as it is now or do you think that they didn't have all of the outside influence in their playing and they were just sort of developing on their own it seems like there was so much more inventive stuff happening then than there is now for the right, most because part. you had you had to have good basics in order to invent cool stuff on your own uh-huh. Because what you would do, because there wasn't that much information, so it, it was left to your own imagination, you know, your own musicality to right. bring out your. You go see guys play, and then you have your take on the way that guy played. You had to me- remember what what the form of his playing was. You had to remember, like, well, what did he do? I remember going to see Steve when he first was coming on the scene. I used to go into the city and watch him play with John Trope's band and with Stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody else I could go see him play with, you know. And driving home, I had to, okay, man. But it wasn't just what he was playing technically. It was the form of the way he was playing and, and musically, you know. And I think uh, the reason why those guys invented that stuff, it was coming not from a totally drumistic way, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It was coming from, you know, that old that old chestnut serving the music, which is totally true, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, how can I make this thing sound good? How can I make this thing? And and sometimes, uh, not even knowing it, uh, you make it sound interesting. Right. You know? Right. Like we were doing, uh, sometimes in a recording studio, before the li- before you have no idea what you're going to play, but you start noodling around and you come up with this thing and somebody goes, yeah, that's it. You know, okay, great. You know, <laughs> you come up with that idea on the fly. Mm-hmm. But uh, but inventing stuff, you know, you do your take. I mean, I don't know uh, 
you know, I mean, from uh, Steve's background is jazz and R&B and then also uh, 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 church music to a degree from what, from what I know. Right. You'd have to have Steve tell you that. I mean, I don't, you know. What I can't well, understand is how a guy from Rochester, New York, ends up sounding the way that Steve Gadd sounds. Well, let me tell you something. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, from what I have heard in interviews, you know, like, you know, his dad would take him to see all the greats. You know, see Count Basie, see Gene Krupa. Mm-hmm. See, and upstate New York, there's a lot of incredible musicians in Albany, in, uh, in, in Rochester, in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. They're incredible players. I remember... Um, uh, I'd be on the road and I'd, and I'd cross paths with the guys in Maynard Ferguson's band. And you'd have, uh, at the time, guys from Buffalo and Rochester, you know, Tommy Rizzo was, uh, used to play guitar with him. And then Mike Bigliori played alto. He was from Buffalo. Tommy was from uh, Rochester. So we played this gig at the Red Creek, you know, because, I mean, during the time that we, I was in Chick's band and they were in, and, and they were in uh, Maynard's band. So we played this place called the Red Creek. And all these guys would come through, and you'd meet all these really incredible musicians that nobody, not a lot of people knew. Like one of them was Charles Ruggiero. Um, I mean, uh, Vinnie Ruggiero, excuse me. Charles is his son. And um, I don't know if you heard, Charles is a really great drummer. He lives in L.A. right now. No, I'm not familiar with him. You should check him out. But Vinnie, Vinnie, the story goes, everybody knows about Vinnie Ruggiero that's anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. you ask Steve Gadd about Vinnie Ruggiero, he'll tell you. But he was in the Rochester area. <laughs> I guess I'm nobody. I don't know. <laughs> he was one of the few guys. I mean, one of you know. I mean, I mean, Coltrane would pass through and they'd play in the clubs there, you know, and right. play, you know. And I remember uh, it was one of those. Uh, the story I was told it was one of those nights where Elvin didn't make it. So guys were sitting in, and the story I got was Coltrane was in the kitchen and he wouldn't come out for anybody, you know, and everybody would be sitting in. So Vinny, Vinny was, a, I believe he was a Philly Joe, big Philly Joe freak. And he was Elvin, of course. And uh, I guess everybody, probably Roy Haynes. But as far as I know, it's Philly Joe and Elvin from the stories I've gotten. Like you have mm-hmm. to get a hold of Charles and he'll tell you. Well, anyway, Vinny sits in and the story goes, he starts playing and Coltrane comes out of the kitchen with a big smile on his face, start blowing the horn in his face like that. <laughs> He didn't come out for anybody but Vinny. Really? And I was gonna, I was gonna get together with him before he passed away. But he, and I wish I had, because I was in the area. But um, he's got tons of cr- transcriptions of Philly Joe Phil, uh, licks, and, and which now you can get. And it's called, uh, I think it's called Vinny's Jazz Book, which Charles got published. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's about that thick. And uh, I had some of the transcriptions before it became a book. You know, they, people would pass them around you know mm-hmm. but it's a great book to have i haven't even looked at it yet but it's i know it's got great stuff in it and uh it's, it's pretty amazing you and uh you mentioned uh elvin jones like he was sort of uh infamous for for just uh, not showing up once in a while right well for certain reasons right but that we will talk about that but right. um but i'm a big elvin freak but um it's hard not to fan do. yeah but um uh you see, you know how how we came up with all that stuff is we listened a lot and took those as basics. And you take the tools you use and you actually create. Mm-hmm. You know, you copy but you create too at the same time. You know what I mean? Do you think and there's a lot what, more create, a lot more copying going on now, and not a lot of creating? 
No, I think there's a lot of creating going on right now. I mean, there's a lot of great talent out there that's not being seen. Like here in Texas, you got some great, great drummers. That uh, this one guy, Daniel DeFore. What's his name? Great. Daniel, De, it's either Daniel Defoe or Daniel Defoe. Okay, he's a young drummer out here, and he's fantastic. He's also a composer. He totally floored me. And of course, um, uh, there's um, Brandon Temple, who's out here, who's a, who's a, who's an amazing creative player. We just hung out with him, um, uh, uh, and he, he just he plays his ass off. And we just uh, Kirk Covington and him do a thing at this place called the One to One Bar. Called, I guess it's called the Temple Covington Project, okay. where you have du- you have double drums, and but Kirk, you know who Kirk Covington is? Yeah, he's another monster too. Yeah, but he also he also sings his ass. I was off, just gonna say, and, and he, he sings really well, and he plays incredible keyboards. Well, you know, Brandon will play, and then he'll start playing keyboards, maybe left hand bass, or they'll have a bass player, a guitar player, and um, it's pretty amazing. So I saw Brandon last night. I sat in with them last night. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, they, uh, uh, you know, I was just sitting here. I was doing some stuff. And Kirk calls me up. He goes, where you been, brother? And come on down tonight. And I went, okay, great. So I went down there and it, we had a blast, you know. Because mm-hmm. so he, 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 he like splits time between there and L.A., right? Yeah, he does. He yeah. does. So um, I don't know. What, what, were we, what were we going to? Oh, oh we're yeah. all over the map. I, we're I, just, I, we're just I, I think there's a lot of creating going on. It's just, um, it's, it's just what you like and what you don't like, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, I don't think there's a lot. I mean, everybody copies. I mean, that's how you learn, you know. Of course. But then, then you make it your own, and then you develop your own voice, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's still going on. Uh, I mean, a lot of young players. I mean, I think it's better now as far as with young players than it was in the 80s. Really? Yeah, I, that's just my own opinion. I'm saying there are more of them now. More creative, more creative people. There are more of them, you know. Yeah. There, there were, there were a lot in the '80s, mm-hmm. but there, there are more of them now. I, I think. Why do you think that is? Why, like, why do you think that was in the '80s? Do you think everybody was just watching all the same VHS tapes and copying? I know it could be. I don't know. I mean, it's like this is my opinion. I'm going to get killed for saying this, but you know. What do you mean? Like, That's what we're here for. That we're here to, you know. But, you know, I mean, I mean, there were a lot of cre- like Dave was very creative and. Uh, um, uh, and uh, you have guys like um, Greg Bissonette. He sounded great, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, – oh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, you know. Uh, these guys are younger than I am. Right. So I'm trying to think of that this that way of a player. So uh, Rodney Holmes, but he was later. Mm-hmm. He was really – I love the way he plays. And, yeah. You know, Will Kennedy, incredibly creative. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there were – but I guess now, I guess maybe with the internet, it seems like there are more. I don't know, you yeah. know. But um, and there are guys that still overplay and play like machines and da da da. But that's just a matter of that's a matter of taste, right? You know. So uh, there's a lot going on, you know. There's almost too much going on. <laughs> Listen, if you haven't already, I recommend checking out the new Sonar SQ1 series. First of all, they're made out of birch, so what that does is give you balanced low 
mid, and high-range tuning. Second, they have a sound sustainer system. And what this does is it completely separates the metal hardware from the wooden shell. It is metal on rubber. And they actually borrowed this technology from the car manufacturers. And third, this may be my favorite part, but the colors and styles of legendary classic cars were the inspiration for the color collection for the SQ1 series. So they're four matte lacquer surfaces, and they make these kits look beautiful. So they look beautiful, and they sound amazing. Check them out by going to sonar.com. Hey, listen, you've heard me talk about it before, but if you're looking for a drumstick with unprecedented durability, then you need to look no further than Promark's Fire Grain Sticks. These heat-tempered sticks take regular hickory drumsticks and turn them into precision tools with unprecedented durability. There's no excess vibration. There's no space age gimmicks or anything like that. It's just natural hickory hardened by flame. So that way they are going to last longer than a normal drumstick. You can learn more by going to Promark.com. Now let's get back into it with Tom Breckline. The interesting thing is with the internet now that there's so much information out there that this is my personal opinion. What I think happens is a large percentage of the people are just doing a lot of surface learning because it's easy to jump from a video of you, then a video of of Vinny, then Steve, then this person, and then that person. But if you do actually want to go deep and you want to get really, really into something, there's so much information out there about it. And yeah. I think that's the amazing thing. It's like, if you really want to be diligent and study, you can do that and it's all online and you can find right. it easily. The, the players for me that really stand out are the ones that transcend the instrument, mm-hmm. transcend, the, transcend the technical aspect, whether they're playing very simple or they're playing something very technical. It's, it's, it, it, it's like you almost forget about the technical stuff. And it's what the guy is actually communicating to the band or to you. Right. Or inside the music, meaning like communication being senior to the mechanics, mm-hmm. and that's and I really believe that's where you got to go with playing. If you can play, you see that in blues guitar players, like well, the best ones, you know, right? Like Albert King, he'll play one note, and he's got thousands of people in the palm of his hand, and you go like, I want that. Or I'd watch Don Elias play mm-hmm. at night, and he'd be playing the stuff, and it wasn't so much. It was the sound and the groove, but it wasn't so much the technical. You go, you go, bock like that, and you just go, "Oh my god, what just happened?" I said, "I want that's what I want." Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And it's like the other the other thing. I was at a Zildjian day one time in nineteen eighty two or eighty three or something like that, and <clears throat> Steve Gadd came out with Ralph McDonald and and everybody else was. Everybody else played great and they were amazing. But then Steve, he played four on the floor, <laughs> two and four on the snare drum, and eight notes on the hi-hat, and I totally fell apart. It transcended. It was like I heard like the most incredible licks in my life, but it was just this groove and this simple groove. He, he did, it was amazing. Was that 84? It could have been, yeah. I was up in the rafters, you know. I was asked to come down and just, you know, check. and it was just... It was a, it was a religious experience, you know. Because there's it that clip like, of him in '84 where he's like, McDonald's? "Well, there's part." I think Steve's playing by himself, and and he's like, in the beginning, he's literally he's not playing anything. He's like, and then there's a part he just starts playing like the hi hat with his left hand and just drops down on the floor, Tom, and it's like the most gigantic statement that you could ever make ever. I don't know if it's the same if it's the same year or not, but. 
I don't know. Well, th- this one he came out with Ralph. Maybe it's not the same one then. And uh, and and, and uh, it was just he was just playing quarter notes on the bass drum, or he was playing footballs on the bass drum. He was playing like you know one and three, and so and it was it was like it was like I saw God, you know. And, it was like, <laughs> right. and I had seen him play in his technical, more technical days too. Right. You know, and and I had seen him play. I, I've been watching him play since 1975. 76. Mm-hmm. I used to be the kid that used to bug him and say, hey, you give lessons? And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I've seen him in simplicity, but I see him play all this creative stuff, too. And then he took it to the next level, you know. I, I the, the other thing that freaked me out, I went, you know, my wife, uh, I mean, she worked with Chicoria Productions for 30 years, you know. Mm-hmm. But before she worked with Chicoria Productions, that's when we got together. And that's, you know, and uh, I remember... She took me, when we first went out, she took me to a Pretenders concert. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I thought it was incredible. Uh, Martin, his um, last name, incredible drummer. But the band was amazing. We saw them at the Santa Monica Pacific. So then I returned the favor. I figured, okay, what would be the entrance point to jazz for somebody who didn't listen? You know, I went, well, Chuck Mangione is playing at the uh, this place. I can't remember the name of the place. It was in L.A., and it was a theater at the time, but a lot of people played there. So I figured, okay, I'll say, I'll take her to see Chuck Mangione. And then, like, you know, and then I could get to see Steve anyway, play, you know. <laughs> right. so, so it was too folded. So they, this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. They started playing Land of Make Believe. You know that tune? Da, 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 mm-hmm. da, da. And it has the one thing. And then the B section goes. Then it goes ABA. Okay, so he comes out and he's got a stick and a brush, <laughs> and he just starts playing this. I guess an ostinato. You know, he starts playing this little this beat with a stick and a brush through the whole song. He never varied the groove, the volume, or the volume. And I want to tell you. When they went to the B section, you know, Bob, da, da, you could feel the tune lift, and he didn't raise the volume. He didn't change any surface. He stayed at the same groove, but you could feel the intensity lift in the tune. And he did that behind the solos, and he did that, and he kicked the solos without even staying on the snare drum and the bass drum and just playing the time with the hi hat, but just that little same groove. And he kicked, kicked the soloist ass without even raising the volume. Same volume all the way through. What was he, he doing? Just, just he. I I put it this way: he was intending it. He wasn't play, he, was, he was going beyond the drum kit and intending the shit to go right to go that way. And only a guy like that can do that. Mm-hmm. It, it goes beyond the instrument. It's 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 almost spiritual, if you will. And that's Steve. You know, he's. He's like Haley's Comet, you know. There's <laughs> nobody's going to come like him in another seventy-five years. Now, of course, you know you got other guys like Vinny who are amazing. You know, it's great. But man, what Steve can do with like just a fraction of the energy—it's—it's—it's it's, it's simply mind-boggling, you know. Mm-hmm. And now, I'm not disregarding, let's you know, because you know the four, you know, Tony Williams, Max Roche, Art Blakey, all those guys. They, they, they're that as well, but, right. but in a different way. Right. You know what right, I mean? Right. For sure. Billy Cobb, the same way. Uh, uh, I just said Lenny White, 
all those guys, you know, uh, Roy Haynes, um, I, I mentioned, uh, what do you think are the steps to get there though how you know how do you how do you practice that how do you how do you make the conscious effort to try to get to that point to where you're not just playing you know you're not just playing patterns and you're not just you're not just playing exercise 35 out of a book you listen to people around you you listen to the other players around you you listen to as much music as you can and try and say what i'm saying for me and what makes that happen? Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. you could play the same beat and think, well, that's not happening. Right. And that's the first step, I think. That's when you go, okay, what do you want to say? What do you want to? What do you want to make that guy feel that's standing next to you, that bass player? What do you want to make the band? What do you want to make the music feel like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to really enhance the music? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you go, and then you. And you take it from the other angle, like what's going to make this music happen? How can I play at this tempo and make it happen? So then you have, I mean, you have to break it down to mechanics. That's what mechanics are for, I believe. So you learn the mechanics as a kid and then you learn all these licks and now you got to learn how to use them. Right. You know, you got to use them. You got to make sentences. I mean, you've heard this all before. It's kind of cliche. You go, you know, make the sentences and the paragraphs and the whatever, you know, and, right. and you learn the language. Okay. So then maybe you want to say something else. This is, I don't know, maybe we'll get a little esoteric here, but you, you, you want it. So how do I do that? And you want it, a mode of feeling. Sometimes it's not thinking about what you're going to play. The only way you can say it is feeling what you're going to play. And I'm sure there's a lot of other guys that feel the same way. Mm-hmm. How can I stay on the hi-hat and make it sound like you're doing a ride cymbal or something like that? Right, right. That's an, it's, 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 I don't know, I, it's just you have to. Do it, play with other people, experiment. Now, now we're going into mechanics again, you see. But it, it goes beyond mechanics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, okay, now you, now you have the mechanics of the instrument. Now, and you know your job is on the instrument. So now how are you going to keep that and make something sound really cool that's going to enhance the music and not hinder the music? Mm-hmm. So the number one thing is to listen. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Listen to the other guy next to you. Check out where the other guy lives. You know mm-hmm. what's going to support that. You know, uh, I mean, and you know, I mean, you know, I'm guilty of going against that, but I'm also guilty of going with it and making it happen. Uh, you know, oh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely guilty of going against it. <laughs> the interesting, <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing I just you learn how to go it. with it. If, if you don't go get, you know, if you, you got to find out what what goes against. It, you know? So that's going to happen. You know. I was thinking the interesting thing about the the technique side of things um, and using that as a means to an end. And, you know, I think that's I think a lot of people get the technical side of it and that's where they stop. And then they say, "Okay, I got this technical thing down. Let me figure out this other technical thing. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. that's just a way for you that you just lifted weights. Now you need to step on the field and score a touchdown. Well, exactly right. Exactly right. You know, I mean, you know, practicing is like being in an exercise room. I think the reason for me, like learning certain things and doing certain exercises are just that they're exercises. So when you play, you don't have to think about what you're going to play. Mm-hmm. You can already go to that area, so to speak, where you can go, you know, or you can make a mistake and play through it. Right. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the groove, you know, the, the, the music or whatever. What, was it, the, wasn't it Miles that said, be wrong, strong? <laughs> Well, there used to be a saying for everybody. I remember, you know, like my friend Biff Hannon used to go, 
yeah, Tom, and you play, yeah, you play strong, but sometimes you play strong and wrong, and that's really good, you know? <laughs> so strong and wrong, yeah, that's, if I make a big, that that's, that's usually my answer to that. Own you know, it. if it's if it sucked, I go, yeah, yeah, strong and wrong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did that on purpose. It's rather than fold, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you don't want to, yeah. you can't, once you, once you make the decision to go there or, or you, yeah. or you actually go there, you might as well stand by your decision. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, you know, why not, you know? Yeah. Last, it's interesting that we're talking about this today because last night I was in the practice room and I was like, oh, I just want to, I just want to play along with a couple of tunes. So I was playing Funky Drummer and love the tune. Like I've played it a zillion times, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I'm playing through it and I'm like, I could play that, I could play that in my sleep. And mm-hmm. as I'm playing it, I'm like, man, this isn't, this isn't really happening. Like it's, it's, I can, pl- I'm playing it, but it's not like, it's not the real shit, you know? I was like, it's not. So then I took it, I put it in a, like a little slower down thing. And yeah, yeah. so I slowed it down and I was like, let me try to see how deep I can get inside of this thing and really <clears throat> like see if I can. And then I did that for about an hour and a half and realized that I don't play it anyway, anywhere close to how Clyde was playing it. And, right. And I was like, it was such an eye-opening experience, and it sort of like widened everything for me. And I was like, "Oh, okay." So now I've totally, you know, I, when I say I've totally changed it, and last night I totally broke it down. But now I have a new approach, and I'm like, "Oh, okay. Let me actually yeah. try to do this the way that he was playing it, and and get it to get it to feel the way it does, and get the accents right, and really like have the have the ghost notes feel this the way that they should, and and all that kind sure. of stuff." It's just a really eye-opening thing to do once in a while, I think. Well, the the reason why it feels so good is because he invented it on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and he's the one that invented it. Right. So it's 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 cool to copy that stuff. So you you know, again, we go back to how you know, guys. Uh, I guess when you didn't have the inter- when you didn't have the internet or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like you listen and then you make it your own, and right. then you invent other stuff from that. You mm-hmm. know. And then some guy could hear you play something and try to copy your thing and doesn't quite. That's because he didn't invent it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But I mean, of course, but I mean, you can still make it feel good, too. But you but you make it feel good your way. Right. You know what I mean? It's just it's just just food for thought, you know? No, no. What you did was exactly right. What you did was exactly right. You know, and I think you learned. I think that I was I I wanted to do that not because I wanted to sort of steal it and use it as my own. I wanted to figure out why does this feel so much better than mine? <laughs> you know, the well, way, the way that he's playing it and, and all that and, and figuring out, Oh, okay. This is really why. You probably had James Brown looking at him going, I'm going to find you. If you don't, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you know, it's like, but you know, I mean, I steal all the time. I mean, it's fine. I think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what does Stravinsky say? He said, uh, was it Stravinsky? Said, uh, what, I can't remember. But the, the the end of the thing was great composers steal. Yeah, it's good uh, g- uh, good, good composers. Uh, good composers copy. copy right. Uh, great great co- composers steal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh yeah, I'm you definitely know? guilty of. I mean, even you look at somebody like Jeff Percaro, where he's everyone's like, oh, this Rosanna shuffle is amazing. And he's like, look, it's a bastardized version. Of the Bo Diddley halftime shuffle and Bernard Purdy's halftime shuffle, oh, and I, I put it together. 
I'm a first offender. I, I cop Steve Gadd up and down in my 20s, you know, and, and everybody else I could think of, you know, yeah. Chris Parker and uh, and uh, Rick Barada, who's one of my him. favorites. And I'm, ha- I'm I'm proud to call him my friend, you know. I used to go see him and Steve play with John Tropezman all the time. And I make him remember. I said, man, I remember what exactly what you were playing on. And I tell him, both of them. I told Steve is what his kit was back in the 70s. He goes, I still have that kit down there. <laughs> I said, you do? I can tell you exactly the drums he was playing. Anyway, but, you know, I, I was guilty of that. But I, but then, then, it, then it evens out, and then you start doing your own stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And you listen to other players. You get ideas, you know? But you play them the way you play them, right. you know? Right. I, I see a lot of younger – and I don't want to generalize because there's a lot of young players that are just – killing it and smoking everybody and ha- are, are super creative but i see yeah. i see a lot of sort of the copy and pasting and no creativity where it's sort of like every person sounds like the next person because it's like they're watching right. a group of people and then they go out and then they play it and they're like oh this is really hip and it's like well you don't necessarily understand why that person played that thing in that setting and you can't just take it out of that setting and put it into your thing and think it's going to be correct right 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 Right. well that was the thing about the miles davis quintet they were a group they they were one instrument you know they they played that way so if you you can take some of tony's stuff and use it but that's what i'm saying you have to know you have to know the language of in other words i guess the word would be assimilate Mm -hmm. what they played and play it like you and use it from the vocabulary you have in the tune but the tune comes first, uh, and the way it feels, it comes first. You yep. know, I've first asked, and foremost. I've asked this question a lot, and I'd be interested to hear your take on it. <laughs> How do you know that it's not correct? You know what I mean? Like, what if you're like, man, this is the most happening shit ever. It's, I'm the man. All this stuff, you know. And if you're not getting, if you're not getting the feedback, it's sort of like you don't know what you don't know. Well, people people look at you funny. That's how you know it's not correct. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, they do. That's part of it. But uh, no, you can you can. I mean, if you've got a good sense, good musical sense, you can feel it's going against the grain and then you switch gears, mm-hmm. you know? You I know? never realized for me that that th- I never realized that this didn't happen to other people, but I came up playing with people who were a lot older than me. So we, I would get right. off the bandstand and they were like, hey, man, you know, that's it's not happening or your shuffle's not happening or this isn't happening or that right. needs work. Or I'd get, I mean, I came, do you know, you know, Joey DeFrancesco? Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. I came, I came up playing with his brother, Johnny. And so he would just like uh-huh. yell at me on the stage, you know, right. which was cool. You know, I, I was okay with it, but he would scream at me and be like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Same here, man. I played with older guys Yeah, and you know, they'd say, that's cool. That's not cool. Everybody goes through that. Right. You know? But when I you're mean, playing with people who are sort of your, your contemporaries and you guys are all the same age and you're 19 years old and you're playing, it's hard, I think, as a, as a younger player to know, you know, am I, am I really playing musically or am I just, you know, am I feeding my ego or do I think this sounds good, but it doesn't really sound that good? Or Well, if you tape yourself, you know, if you tape the rehearsal or anything, you could pretty much hear it. Yeah. If it sounds good, it doesn't sound good. True. <laughs> True. You know, I mean, you know, you see these rehearsals. I go, man, I, man, I had a great day today. They listen to the tape and I go, oh man, that's mm-hmm. you know. But I do it in the privacy of my own. <laughs> I, I did it in my own private way, you know. Right. And then you just work on it, and then you know, 
like we all like we all do yeah of course i played in a band for 15 years and we recorded every single show and and uh and i would and after a couple years i stopped doing it but i would listen to the show literally right after the show like either on the bus and just like and i was like man i play a lot of notes even nights that I came off and I was like, I had one of those nights where I felt like I couldn't play a wrong note. I couldn't play the wrong thing. Like, you know, right. I was like the man. And then I would listen back and I was like, Ooh, I played a lot of notes and, right. and right. constantly, you know, you start playing less and less and then you're like, Oh, I'm pushing or dragging or whatever it is. Right. But that could be a brutal eye opener. Well, well then there, there is, then there are the nights that you think you played like crap and you listen to the tape and you go like, this sounded great. (laughs) There's the other side too, you know? Yeah, that's true. And it's like, you know, it's, it's nothing. I mean, we've all got it, you know, it's like, you know, I I would, there there was a point where I, I would listen to the gig, but then I'd go like somebody come up with a tape or a recording. I said, let's wait till tomorrow. I had a great time tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Don't ruin it. I want to sleep. And then, then I'd listen to it the next day. And then, and then, then, uh, you know, uh, Go, okay, I need to do this, do that because it's it's closer to the gig and right and and it's a new it, it's a new gig, you mm-hmm. know that gig is done now. So right, right. Do you so, feel like you're you're super critical on yourself or super hard on yourself? I should say in my own privacy, but I try not to beat myself up too much. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Um, I like I, I'm trying to have as much fun. I always try and have enough. Um, as much fun with it as I can, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. But uh, uh, you know, I, but the thing is, you go okay. Just think of that as just like um, some sort of qualification, like you know, compartment it and just say like, okay, I need to do that, and you just need to work on it, so you don't get bummed out, you know. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you just go okay. That you need to work on this. You need to work on that. And you go, or you need to think about this. You need to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than beating yourself up all the time, mm-hmm. which I, I still do. Well, yeah, of course I do too. <laughs> but but then, but but then I, I I cool it out by saying, okay, man, knock it off. Okay, you need to do this and do that. Okay, that tempo doesn't feel good, so just work with on that tempo and whatever you know, mm-hmm. you know, your limbs just to make it again. Now you go to the mechanics, right? Just to make the body feel good mm-hmm. playing that tempo or that groove. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. And then handle it. You know. Right. And then, and then move on, mm-hmm. you know? An idea that, speaking of, of practicing different things and working on things that you're struggling with, an idea that I've I've started to notice with with doing this podcast in the last four years is that when we first start playing, it's sort of easy to find stuff to work on because you don't know anything. So everything's sort of new and everything oh, yeah. is, everything is, is, uh, is going to challenge you and push you past your comfort zone. And you need that time where you're spending three, four, five, six hours a day practicing for, you know, a couple of years. But once you start getting, um, getting to a point where you're a more seasoned player, where do, where do you sort of determine what, where you're going to practice or, you know, what areas you're going to practice, what you should focus on? Because I'm guessing that now you don't have the luxury of practicing four or five or six hours a day. No, you don't. I mean, but, uh, if, uh, you know, I try if, if I'm not if I'm not on the road and I'm home. You know, I, I try and uh, about an hour, hour and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or I sometimes I end up three hours, but you know, <laughs> and I'll, I'll lose track of time. You know, and uh, uh, but I'm just trying to work on um, 
Well, I'm working on time and groove. Basic. Mm-hmm. Basic stuff. Always, it, everything goes back to basic stuff. Right. I, find, I try to find out what basic is out. You know, it's just not happening. And then I go, okay, well, let's work on that. You know, and, you know, okay. To try and make it feel good without a lot of body motion. Let's, I'm just saying as a scenario. Sure. Much body motion going around. Maybe less would be better, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I was more planted with my feet or something, you know, just try different things and then work out different ex- But simple, simple stuff at, at medium to slow tempos, you know. Mm-hmm. And then while you're working on it, while you're getting it, then, you know, take a break and jam a little bit, you know, and then right. go back to <laughs> go back to uh, slapping yourself on the wrist or something, mm-hmm. you know. That makes sense? Is it Totally makes sense. Is it, yeah. So, I mean, that's what I do now. And I love the, uh, I love that polynome app, mm-hmm. you know, polynome. Yep, I do. But I use it very simple. I, I, I like what I do is I put, I put, uh, um, what I do is, uh, I'll, the first exercise would be four bars of metronome and then keep the metronome going, but with rests, no mm-hmm. click. Right. For four bars and see where I end up. Uh. Then eight. Eight bars, but always four bars in front. Then eight bars. Then 16. Yikes. Then 30, 32, you know? Oh. Next step is 32. But that's that's like, I mean, but, but the concept is holding a groove, mm-hmm. not keeping economic time, like holding a groove, and it stays it stays pretty much there. Because, you know, time, it ebbs and flows, you know? Right. And, and it's, it, it's good. Just so it doesn't move, like, too far afield. Right. And I think it should yeah. ebb and flow, like, especially, especially Absolutely. at the end, you know, at the end of a tune or something like that, like the tempo is going to go up a click or two. Like, I think it should. Absolutely. It may dip in the chorus. I mean, dip in, you know, and whatever. And uh, it ebbs and flows, right. you know. You know, the interesting thing is I've, I've done like the drop metronome thing where, you know, it'll drop out every, every couple bars, like randomly. So you can have right. it drop out like, and then it, it, it'll increase over time. So it'll drop out, you know, one bar every 16 and then maybe two bars every 16, then three, then right. four, then five. And it right. kind of like builds up. But I've never gone like long stretches of eight bars or 16 or 32 bars with no metronome at all. Right. Right. I'm definitely going to give that a, I'm definitely going to give that a try. So w- yeah. what's some of the stuff that you're working on now? Who are, you, who are you playing with? Where can people catch you on the road? Where can they catch you locally? Where's the best place to find out about where you're playing? Well, I mean, I'm playing, I'm just playing locally here in Austin right now. I mean, I, I, I was doing some stuff with Christopher Cross a little bit. I've been playing with um, Kenny Loggins for the last eight years. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just time to move on. But, you know, hopefully we'll play again together, you know. I've been teaching out here and I've been playing locally and also doing recording in the studio at home. Nice. We built a studio inside the garage on rubber stilts, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, the outside sound and all that, you know, just just really nice. I mean, the, so the outside sounds don't come in and, you know, like right vibrations from the sure. street and all that, you know, and um, people have been trying to get me to do this for years, you know, and um, let me turn on the light. <laughs> now that, People have been trying to get me to do this for years, and I, I would always shy away from it. But when I found out that I just needed to get good sounds, good mic placement, you know, because they're going to do what they want to do with it. I was going to say, know, you don't have to worry lost. about mixing it and, and all right. that. You get them some nice sounds, and they can do whatever, right. and get them the stems. Yeah. But I get my I get, I get my hand in mixing, too, and it's, it's, it's fun. But um, 
what I did, I had I had like basically two um, two engineers, two really great engineers say when they got the files, they said, man, the room sounds great. The drums sound great. I didn't have to do anything to it, you know. Nice. And, you know, I mean, for me to hear that, it's almost like more than the play. I'm going like, yeah, because before it used to be, you know, you know, you, you walk in, you know how to do your thing, you know, for the tune and stuff and you get paid for that. But now you're sending files and you're charging money for this and you want to give them something good. They're paying for this. So you, <laughs> it better sound good. You know, and that's when you start thinking, oh, God, it's got to sound good. I mean, you know, it, I mean, it's got to sound that that's, you know, playing is one thing, but it has to sound really good. And mm-hmm. you go like, holy sh- shit, you know, it's like, so the first, the first one was kind of nerve wracking, but you know, it wasn't, you know, I did it in, I did it in two takes. I was like, whoa, this is cool. You know, and I sent it. And, <laughs> and then and you then walk it, in your house, you know, it's not like, and then, yeah, then you go into the kitchen. <laughs> right. and, then, you know, and, and then I was waiting for them to, you know, I sent them the MP3, you know, I learned how to do all that, you know, like send the file, put it in a and then give the mp3 bounce it and uh i was like oh shit i said i did it and then he heard the, he'll come back and go i love it it sounds great and i went like i'm going yes you know i really did it yeah this is it's like I, I really like what you do with the tune and then you know and then, then i did some other sessions and they go could you change this you could change that and that's fine and then mm-hmm. you know uh uh so i've uh, now I'm no more I'm not a novice at it, but I'm still learning, you know. And it's right. it's, it's great. Uh, the last thing I did was for this uh, guy here, a really great guitar player. He goes by the name of Sefo, S E F O, and um, it's really, really, really great guitar player. Anyway, he did. I think he he played with a lot of major artists in Spain. So he had this he uh, he had this um, engineer there. That does a lot of stuff. I guess he's a very busy engineer, and he's mm-hmm. he's kind of a popular engineer in you know in that country. Uh, and uh, so I did some tracks for him. And just a couple of weeks ago, he said, "Yeah, I sent the tracks to this guy, and and he said I loved the way he, he said he loved the way the drums sounded, and he didn't have to put hard he didn't put any EQ, although he did put it on just you know for when they mastered overall, yeah, overall." And I was like, wow, that's great. You know, I was really happy. That means the room sounds great. The drums are sounding good, you know. And, uh, well, I got the okie dokie from Cepho that, I was, that the uh, that the tracks that the that track the sounded great. You know, the drumming was on. They, 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 they do you bring in an engineer to help you with while you're doing it or you just do it all on your own? Oh, it's all me. That's awesome. I've got the computer, right? This very computer right here. On a, you know, I got my rack, you know, the, the rack with the drums on it, you know. Right. But then I got a little tray where the computer sits on it. And I got my interfaces here, you know. Awesome. My speakers are over there. So this is the playback. And then it's just, you press record. I mean, well, you, you know, you group the tracks, you, da, 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 you know, with, you know, the, mm-hmm. I'm using ProLogic 10. And then, uh, you know, I've already made, got the levels, you know, wh- a while ago. Right. But, um, it's awesome, you know, man. Technology. And, I know. It, is, it, it hurts it, a lot, but it helps a lot, too. You know? Yeah, it nice. is. It, it, and uh, I'm getting better at it. I just did one, like, this past week. Uh, I did, you know, I needed to do two. I wanted to get it out of the way, and I did two, you know, two, first and second takes. And uh, I got faster at it. You know, well, the more you do something, the more you, mm-hmm. you know, you get better at it. So, of course. And, like, you know, and then I did the two tunes. I guess I did them in, I did them in, I mean, 
you know, with sending and getting stuff back. It took about three hours, which I thought was pretty good. You know, you know, I'm talking about, you know, it take me two weeks. It's above my, well, it's above my pay grade, man. I, I got the. That's why I have somebody edit this podcast. It's just, well, I'm not a technical guy. I mean, I'm a technical. Like, uh, tech is is easy for me, but uh, like recording and wires and connecting this to that, and, and like it's just it goes over my head. Yeah, well, once once you just set this thing up, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, if you keep it simple. It's all right. You know, these other guys, they come in, they go, yeah, I got this board. I got that. I got this. I got yada, yada. And I'm just going, look, I'm just going to keep this simple. You right. know what I mean? I don't. I'm just going to keep it simple. And it's working. Keeping it simple. It's just, it's working for me now. Everybody that I've recorded for, they, they, they really love it, what's going on. So I'm figuring, well, what's the successful action? Keep it simple, but learn yeah. more. Yep. You know? Yeah. That makes sense. So. So how can people connect with you if they want to either have, because there's other people who listen to this podcast other than drummer. So if people want you to play on a track or if they want to come see you live, uh, whether it be in Austin or, or somewhere else, where do you, do you post those dates somewhere? Or? You know, I don't, I have to get that. It's, 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 uh, I mean, it would be at, uh, tombreckline.com, but I don't, I've been a bad boy. I have to get a new uh, website and start doing that. Mm-hmm. But if they want to do any recording, they can, uh, reach me at, gbreckline at gmail.com I like it <laughs> you know? or uh, I don't have yeah go ahead I was just going to say I'll, I'll uh, make sure that all the links for, for your stuff are in the in the show notes for the podcast and we'll put your email on there and, and if people okay. want if people want to get in touch with you don't spam him but uh we don't. We don't have a problem with that. Don't worry about it. So right, right, you, right. You won't get it. You won't get any spam. But if people do want, to, may want to reach out to you, uh, or they may want to reach out for lessons or or things like that. So yeah, they can get to me through that. that awesome. To, that email, you know. So uh, and there's a lady that works for me. Her name is Frida, but I don't have the email address with me. I have to go in the other room and get it. But um, well, why don't you give it to me and I'll put it in the show notes to make sure that. Well, we- Okay, yeah, I'll 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 I'll, uh, I'll uh, text it to you. Good deal. That's probably that's probably the best way to get a hold of me, rather than that email. I'll yeah. send that to you. Okay, good deal. Well, Tom, thank you for taking the time to chat. I appreciate. it. I'm glad we finally got this lined up, man. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, I'm sorry for the delay. I was going through that rehearsal. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you idiot. You know, no, no need to apologize at all. I know that everyone's schedule gets crazy, and like I said. I've done 400 of these, so there's always scheduling. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's other people. One, I had an interview a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think this has ever happened, but I just completely blanked on it. Like, didn't didn't show up, didn't like nothing, just gone. Oh and, god! And the guy's like, "Hey, man, are we doing this thing?" And I was like, "I'm not even. I'm oh. not. I'm like not even by the studio. I've never done that before. So, but like, I get it. Things happen. Oh wow! We're all human. Holy crap!" Anyway, I'm so. glad you. I'm glad, uh, and I gotta thank Wayne too for hooking us up. Yeah, of course, you know, Wayne Salzman. Thank you, you know. for connecting us. If you if you're listening, and uh, and Tom, thank you again, man. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Dick. Thank you. All right. All right, folks. That is a wrap with Tom Breckline. I hope you dug that and check it out. That's the last episode in the 300s. The next one to come out is going to be episode 400. It's pretty cool. I'm pretty amazed that that we're going to be at 400. Anyway, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, belabor the point. But if you haven't already, do me a favor. I put out 400 of these episodes. Do me one single favor. Leave a rating or review. That's all I ask. Doesn't cost you a dime. It doesn't take a lot of time. Nothing. Go to iTunes. Leave a rating. Leave a review. That'll be 
my you paying me for the 400 episodes I've done. That's all I need. That's it. If you could do that, I'll love you. And if you don't do that, I'll love you anyway. You know that. All right. Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. I'll see you on the other side in the 400s. (laughs) Peace.